Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer, President Biden said he wanted to be a bridge to a new generation of Democratic leadership. So has he been? Yeah, I think we have a great bench. You know, if you look at, I mean, he's going to be the nominee for the Democrats in 2024. But when you look at the bench of uh, possible presidential candidates that are in waiting for 2028, you know, I have a theory that the Trump years made Democrats great. Just really good candidates because there's so much on the line. I think um, both the caliber, quality of candidates, the issues that governors had to deal with so existential. I think Mm. that it just produced a whole generation of talent that might not have coalesced if there had not been so much on the line. That's Jennifer Palmieri, who was communications director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and was a White House communications director under President Obama. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Dear Madam President, and you can see her on Showtime series, The Circus. We're also joined today by Chris Smith, who's also a bestselling author, including of The Daily Show, The Book, which I loved, and he's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair covering politics. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. As you can hear, today we're going inside the Democratic primary. I know the Republican primary has sucked up most of the oxygen lately. Uh, Last week's debate was interesting. But there's drama on the other proverbial side of the aisle, too. Biden faces serious challenges as he seeks re-election. The number one concern might be about his age. At age 80, he's the oldest president in American history, and right-wing media has been quick to frame him as senile. And there are these questions about the bench that Jennifer was talking about. So, Chris Smith, is the fact that Biden's running for re-election, is it a sign that he hasn't finished building that bridge yet? Right. You know, he never said how long the bridge was going to be. He never said it it, it was the Verrazano Bridge of politics versus the Brooklyn Bridge, if I'm, you know, going to stay Brooklyn, New York-centric here. Sure. Yeah. The bridge, in Biden's view, isn't completed Jennifer's right. Uh, The perverse side of the Trump years as the Democrats, you know, the farm system has produced a a bunch of talent. But let's be realistic. You know, the last incumbent president to walk away from the job, to not run for a second term was LBJ under extraordinarily, you know, bad uh, conditions. 
you know, who gives up power voluntarily in, in our political system? So, yes, particularly if Trump is a nominee again, uh, Biden is probably best situated to win a second term. So I would like to see a lot of these Democrats, the governors and others on a national stage. This is not going to be the moment. Hmm. Here's a recent headline from Vanity Fair. Uh, It says House Democrats have a vocal Joe Biden cynic in their ranks, and he says he's not alone. Uh, Jennifer, you know, this is referring to Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, who's been out there doing interviews, calling for somebody to to primary Biden, somebody other than Mm -hmm. RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson. What do you make of what Phillips has been saying? I think he's an island, honestly. You know, look, Brian, as you know, Democrats, like we're warriors, you know, W-O-R-R-I-E-R-S, warriors. So we worry a lot about, you know, politics and our standing, you know, more so than Republicans, hand ringers, if you will. Uh, But I think it's because, you know, we worry a lot about outcomes. And in the probably in the fall prior to the midterms, I would say there was more chatter in the Democratic circles about, oh, my God, you know, Biden's not doing well. His approval rating is really low. We're going to get slaughtered in the midterms. Um, We need an alternative to him. And then three things happened. One, the midterms did not turn out to Mm -hmm. be as people expected. And I think that that goes to the, the quality of candidates that we had on the ballot, but also just that this is not, you know, this is the after times the, in the before times you could count on a party in power doing badly um, in a midterm. But there's just different issues at stake, uh, existential issues that that's bringing out different um, kinds of voters. Uh, the second thing that happened was a very good state of the union for President Biden, where he, you know, you, you may mm-hmm. recall he had like a sort of energetic back and forth in real time with hecklers from the Republican side about Social Security. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks. The idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> Folks. <laughs> so, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. had like a good spirited state of the union that that showed a lot of fight and a lot of energy. And then the third thing was that trip to Kiev that was just so stunning that he, you know, showed up, had the nerve to actually go into the heart of this war zone and the extraordinary efforts that it took to do that. And that was just, it was like, bam, 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 just like three major actions projecting strength. And then it's like, that was when just in like, when I hear all the chattering, that's when it all started to fall away and be like, oh, okay, 
he is in, you know, his, mm. his, his, his strength is insurmountable. He probably is the right person to take on Trump. And as much as Democrats worry, I feel like that has kind of fallen away to say, like, this is what 2024 is going to be. Hopefully it's the last time that there has to be this, you know, titanic struggle between a Democrat and Donald Trump, but it's Joe Biden's fight to finish. And Chris, do you see Biden running not just against Trump or the GOP nominee, but also against the Supreme Court? Probably not overtly, but certainly on the issue of abortion and women's right to choose. I mean, that's powerful. Uh, the proof was in the midterms. The proof is in the the state referendum that we've seen, you know, since then. And it plays to target audiences that they very much need, you know, suburban mm. women voters, black voters who they're extraordinarily worried about turnout. So, yeah, I, Biden won't call out uh, justices or the court uh, by name, but their impact. Oh, yeah, we're going to hear a lot about that. Chris, Jennifer is saying that the chatter uh, in Democratic circles about Biden has tamped down, has died down. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's true? It has. And the points Jennifer makes for why that's happened are absolutely on target. Layered in and around or through all of those points are uh, economic Good news, you know, not uh, unadulterated, but, you know, the Biden theory all along has been that the legislation that was passed last year, infrastructure and otherwise, would start to be felt in real people's lives. And that's kicking in, you know, not uniformly, not across the board, but, you know, job numbers are way up, consumer confidence is up. Inflation has moderated to some extent, and and people are feeling that. You know, a primary is not going to happen. But, and not to get grim, you know, if Biden uh, falters, if his health, uh, you know, doesn't remain robust, you know, we should be talking about what else could happen. And, you know, Gavin Newsom's people, they're ready to jump in right away. Jay Pritzker's got the money and the profile. Uh, Whitmer, to some extent, you know, would be, uh, and Jen knows this well, you know, another very prominent factor in that kind of dynamic. And it's not just us speculating. I mean, you talk to the Biden people and there's no tangible reason there's no development in the president's health that's making them more worried than not. But they're realists and, you know, they know the actuarial facts as well as the rest of us. So they are very much keeping their fingers crossed and and wondering how this is going to play out. Mm. Uh, Jennifer wrote a piece about Gretchen Whitmer that we'll get into in just a little bit. Uh, but first, Jen, on this issue of age, how do you approach it? I, I know that when I talk with, with Biden aides and family members, they, they know age is a factor. They just get frustrated with the media when the media makes it out to be the only factor. Like it's the only thing that matters. Um, how, how do you approach this as a you know longtime campaign strategist? Well, I think if I were them, what I would want to do is have him embrace it the way you saw, um, you know, in sort of the tradition of FDR, probably our our most physically feeble president, but, you know, an incredibly strong president at a time where the American president had to be uh, that strong on the world stage. And also, 
you know, George Washington, there was a lot of unrest with the Continental Army at one point. People weren't getting paid. The war wasn't going well. And he gave a speech to the troops and he had to pull out his spectacles, which they called them then and said, forgive me, but my eyesight has grown weak in service of my country. Something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. And it really moved everyone. Hmm. Biden could easily make the argument that if he thought someone else could finish this job, you know, that's what he says, finish the job. He, he talks about it in terms of economic programs, but also I think really it's in terms of this existential threat that Trump represents. He is doing this in service of the country, you know, embrace the notion that he is wise. With with age comes this kind of wisdom. You know, it's not like a perfect way to manage this, but probably the best way to manage it. Mm. I wonder if there's a double standard when we talk about this age topic, uh, a double standard between Biden and Trump. Uh, let's get into that in just a moment. Quick break here on Inside the Hive. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. And we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter, talking with Jennifer Palmieri and Chris Smith uh, about the Democratic primary, uh, about President Biden and his reelection plans. So is there an unfairness at play here, Chris? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of conversation about Biden's age. It is never ending in, in the Fox bubble. And yet Donald Trump, basically the same age. Sure. And uh, it's not fair um, and it's going to continue to be unfair. You know, I think a lot of it flows from just how the two men project. Uh, You know, Biden has grown less vigorous over time. You know, you're not seeing him on uh, motorcycles or anything uh, these days. But, you know, Trump is just very aggressive. You know, that's who he is. That's his brand. Uh, Biden has grown over the years to be a sort of more uh, cool style in in every definition of that word. So there was certainly, you know, when Trump very gingerly made his way down that ramp, you know, there was plenty of attention to his physical condition and his age at the time. But yeah, the scales are are not even. When I wrote a feature story a couple of months ago about Biden and his age and what a big factor this would be in 2024, I looked this up and yeah, everybody ages differently, but it was astounding to me. Uh, FDR at his death, 63. LBJ, 64. 
right? And now we've got an 80-year-old president and, um, you know, all four living longer and healthier. You know, I'm, I'm in favor of that. But it's just remarkable to think about in context Biden's age. Mm. How old those guys look. I mean, it's I mean, FDR was obviously very ill, but right. um, even LBJ, when he was president, to think that he was only in his early 60s, that job weighed real heavy on him. Mm. So now in 2023, as we think about you know Biden's reelection campaign, I, I think we've, we saw a preview during the Fox debate, Jennifer, where uh, the Biden campaign bought a one minute television ad and uh, talked about his accomplishments, promoted the economic recovery. There was a brief shot at Trump where it was like, you know, some some people believe America is a failure, but but Biden believes the best yet to come. That that basically is the message we're going to hear for another uh, 15 months. Right. Yeah. And I think that um, on the economic, you know, on the economic programs is that, you know, what I would try to be going for. I, I recently I went to a uh, retreat with some House Democrats. The question I got asked the most from the members was, is Bidenomics OK? <laughs> is it OK for us to talk about Bidenomics? They meant like, is that like, is it a good term to use with voters or do you risk backlash because people still are not, even though the economy is doing well and like all sorts of you know, by all sorts of measurements, people don't give Biden high marks on the economy yet. And they don't necessarily feel confident about the future of the economy, even though they feel like they Mm. personally are doing better. And I think that Bidenomics was like, it was smart for the White House to adopt that term because it breaks through, right? It is sort of controversial because it is a little bit risky, right? Because the, you know, the Republicans picked up right away and they're like, Bidenomics means high inflation or whatever critique they want to launch. They're going to do that anyway, regardless of what uh, the Biden team does. And so it gave them a way, way to break through. And I don't think that members of Congress necessarily need to embrace that word. But the point is what you want to have breakthrough with voters is there is a plan and it is working. <laughs> credibility, you know, credibility in governing, I think it's, it's not just with the economy, but just in general, when you're running against a chaos candidate, when people have so little faith in institutions, so little faith in government, they feel like nothing works to show there's a plan on infrastructure, on semiconductor plants, on with the Inflation Reduction Act, with a lot of clean energy investments, and that it's yielding results, even if people don't give Biden really high marks on the economy, it lessens the draw to Trump because they see that there's something that's happening that where things are getting better. Mm. So that's Bidenomics. That's that's it in a nutshell, huh? I mean, I that's my interpretation of, uh, you know, my well, their interpretation of Bidenomics is it's like, you know, fighting to have fairness in the economy and laying a strong foundation for economic growth and to come. But I think in terms of what you can reasonably expect voters to believe by the time you get to the election and what they want to prove, what their job really is, I think, is to prove like things are getting better in the economy. There is a new found like we have made investments that are going to pay off for a long time to come. This isn't just like stopping, you know, coming back from COVID. Something more is happening here. And even if it hasn't all taken hold, people just have some faith that, you know, trust. Who do you trust on the economy? Mm. So Brian used an important word, which is ads, right? And the Biden people believe they can tackle the two things we were just talking about through advertising. You know, you don't have a candidate who can be running around the camp, the, the country in person. Um, and you don't have a candidate who to date has been getting what they think is deserved credit for improvements in the economy. 
They've already mm. obviously started advertising. You know, the scale of that is just going to grow exponentially. And that's, they think, the answer to these two problems. Can I add, uh, there was a new ad out now post-debate, too, on abortion that I think is really powerful. It's called These Guys, which is clever. And the last people who should be involved are these guys. First of all, I'm the one that got rid of Roe v. Wade. Florida Governor DeSantis quietly signed into law one of the nation's strictest abortion bans. Governor DeSantis, you signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida. I believe in a culture of life. If I were president of the United States, I would literally sign the most conservative pro-life legislation that they can get through Congress. Do you believe in punishment for abortion? Yes or no, as a principle. Uh, The answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. They had the proactive ad prior to the debate about the economy and then followed that up with uh, an ad on abortion rights. Mm. What, What Biden's avoided is he's avoided talking about Trump's legal quagmire. Chris, mm-hmm. at some point, is he going to have to? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this was small, but I was really curious about a, a tweet that the Biden campaign put out. The wording was something like, you know, nothing's really going on, but this is a great time to donate to my campaign, you know, which was an obvious reference <laughs> to Trump being indicted. So, no, Biden will avoid talking directly about Trump's legal troubles. He'll, however, you know, go hard on the importance of small d democracy as he did leading into the midterms. You'll see and do see a lot of Democratic surrogates speaking much more bluntly about, you know, Trump being indicted and just playing into their general Democratic Biden theme that do you want to go back to this chaos? You know, whether the specifics of the legal troubles result in trials between now and November, you know, Biden has got us back to some kind of normal. Do you really want to go back to chaos? Speaking of legal troubles, Hunter Biden. Um, Jen, how concerned is the Biden team or should the Biden team be about that as a wild card, about the sun as a wild card? It's a, uh, you know, it's a very painful issue for the family. And that means it's rough on the staff too. You know, like you can feel that when the principal is weighted down by something like that. So I think that it is a tough issue for them. I think that they have resolved, and I believe this is true, that the only people who are really motivated and interested in Hunter are, you know, is like the the MAGA wing. It's not even... Republicans writ large, it's the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. And otherwise, the Hunter story is tragic and and well known to people. And just not something that's, you know, it is like not fun. And it is be great if it had not manifested itself into a special counsel for sure. Um, but kind of baked in with the public. Yeah, it gives Trump a, a false equivalency, you know, um, yeah. mm-hmm. to. Uh, yeah, and, but it also it's like if um, if 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 everything's so rigged, why is there a special counsel against the president's investigating the president's son if everything's so rigged? Um, so if facts mattered at all in the magazine and they don't, you could make that argument. But it does. If you want to follow facts, it certainly does undercut the notion that the system is rigged. 
Some of us still think facts matter. You know, we can still live in a fact-based world. I think facts matter. It's just in the MAGA wing. I think maybe they don't. No, I mean, they obviously, they certainly wish the Hunter Biden stuff would go away for both political and personal reasons. You know, it takes up space with us, with the media, that they feel like they could obviously occupy with happier news. They, you know, don't believe, as Jen alluded to, that voters or the voters they need care all that much, that the Republicans ran this playbook in the midterms in 22, in the general election in 20, and Biden and Democrats won. So, you know, they still continue to think it's good for them if the Republicans take up time and energy railing about Hunter. Quick break here and then more on the next generation of Democratic leadership. Uh, By the way, uh, send me an email. Let us know what you think of this program, this episode, and who you want to hear from on future episodes. I'm at bstelter at gmail.com. And we'll be right back. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, talking with Jennifer Palmieri of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and the Obama White House, as well as Chris Smith of Vanity Fair. Uh, Jennifer, you were with Vice President Kamala Harris last month in Iowa. Um, There have been so many think pieces about the vice president and her status and her popularity. What say you? A couple of days ago, I called, didn't just text, placed actual phone calls to four different members of the vice president's team to say, congratulations, you have done it. You have, she has, you all have changed the narrative around her. I write a lot about women leaders. I worked for Hillary. I observe women leaders a lot. I wasn't sure the the vice president had, uh, the, the coverage of her was so tough I was not sure that it that you know uh that they would be able to move it in 23 and uh, they really haven't when I I went with her to Des Moines in last week of July and interviewed her on stage at Drake University where she went to Des Moines because the state had just passed a six week abortion ban but also alongside of that, the Republicans were having their like big weekend event uh, for the Iowa caucus, um, like one of their first big kickoff events around the Iowa caucus. 
And, you know, she was good there to talk about the erosion of rights. But what I what I saw in her was having really hit her stride in prosecuting an argument, she's a former prosecutor, against sort of the MAGA Trumpism erosion of rights, whether that was voting rights, you know, abortion rights, gay rights. And what I've seen just in a lot of the coverage lately was people understanding, like, she's someone that can speak to these issues. Um, it does it uniquely well. These are the demographics that she is able to speak to with a lot of passion and credibility are the same demographics that are lagging right now for Biden and how important that is. Hmm. Absolutely. She's important. I mean, people vote for the head of the ticket. We know that. But given that Biden's 80, we started talking about the bridge to the next generation. She's the on-ramp, right? You yeah. know, in terms of this administration and the next election, if people are going to be concerned about Biden making it through another full term, they want to know that Harris is capable. And Jen mentions demographics. Absolutely. I mean, the Biden campaign is really worried about black turnout. Kamala Harris's appeal with black voters is still something of an open question. But this also bleeds into something that, again, I don't need to remind Jen about. They're, you know, extraordinarily worried about third party uh, votes. You know, yeah. in 2016, it was nearly six percent. And that was important. They think there's a good chance the percentage could be higher this year with Cornell West mm-hmm. and or Manchin in the picture. And that could be a real problem. And Harris could help particularly with black voters, but others as well, neutralize uh, that problem. Yeah. Young voters, black voters, um, female voters, just been going to red states too, not just, you know, not just blue states. And just she just speaks about these issues with a lot of passion that I think energizes uh, voters that need to get energized. When it comes to this 2024 race, we have listed off so many wild cards here. Is it more, Jen, than there were for you in 2016, for example? Yes. I mean, there's a decent chance that the Republican nominee will be convicted of a crime before the election. I don't know. Just let that sink in. (laughs) That should be enough without talking about Manchin or third parties or or Cornell West or RFK Jr. (laughs) Yeah, there there is possibility of Green Party on the ballot in the form of a Cornell West candidacy. Uh, Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election. The votes that she got in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania were Trump's margin of victory. While I think Biden will get reelected, states aren't static. You know, they, the demographics of these battleground states have changed. Wisconsin, for example, fewer college educated voters now, even then different from 2020. You know, college educated voters are those are Biden voters, not college or Trump voters. The margins of one percent or even half a percentage point in these battleground states could really mean a Trump victory. And you could have it. You could have an attack from the moderate Side, if you have a sort of no labels Joe Manchin kind of candidate, as well as from the left with a, a you know Green Party or now West candidacy, it's a very hard thing to plan for. You know, to <laughs> can't go back and look at a lot of models for the your opponent being convicted of a crime, and then a third party candidate from the right of your party, as well as a third party candidate from the left of your party. And, you know, I'm still interested in this so-called shadow campaign. You know, we, we talked about Gavin yeah. Newsom earlier. You profiled Governor Gretchen Whitmer for Vanity Fair over the summer. 
certainly, you know, a lot of eyes are going to be on her heading into 2028. What did you learn uh, in Michigan and, and, and why did you decide to write that piece? I, I met her in 2020. I went out three weeks prior to the announcement that about the kidnapping plot against her. I went out to interview her for the circus. She told me later that when I interviewed her, she already knew about the plot. And it was definitely top of mind. I was like, wow. I, at that point, we knew this woman had already been through a lot. Trump had been attacking her. She'd had like armed protests in front of her house and at the Capitol. And I was really struck. I thought, what am I going to find? Is she going to be cowed? Is she going to be nervous? Is she going to feel like she needs to change course because of all these attacks? And the answer is no, <laughs> across the board. And it was, she managed to not take these attacks personally, even as she was angered by them. And there was a kind of defiance that I had not seen in a woman leader before that I wanted to understand better and went and spent a week in, in Michigan and, you know, and, and found that I think it's partly it's a Gen X woman. She watched Hillary Clinton get attacked for no good reason. She watched Jennifer Granholm, who was a governor of Michigan, get attacked for no good reason. So Gretchen Whitmer knew not to take it personally when it happened to her and she knew not to back down when it happened to her. And there's so mm. many women in leadership positions in Michigan right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to understand what that is about her and see, you know, I thought she'd be a good presidential candidate and wanted to confirm. And I, I you know, came out of there really believing that the sort of new generation is going to have an advantage advantage as running as a as a, as a presidential candidate that you know women like Hillary Clinton just uh, didn't have it's it's it shows progress and i feel like that's true of Whitmer but it's, it's you know it's true for other women who will run for president as well right uh maybe i've saved the spiciest question for last chris but if if there is a scenario where biden is not able to run not able to seek reelection uh, maybe this time next year or something what happens then? Oh, man. Uh, I think about what a, a consultant, a smart guy told me months ago is that it's a shit show, you know? Um, the, the advantage goes uh, that late in the game, I think, to money, you know, to candidates that can raise it or spend it themselves, which is why I think Pritzker in, in that scenario becomes extremely formidable. You know, he could ramp it up in a hurry. He's an attractive candidate in a variety of ways from a big state. You know, he's got a decent profile already. You know, Newsom has already put together or put some of the pieces in place if necessary. He's going to be debating uh, Ron DeSantis, right, in November. So, you know, he's he's making sure that he's available. Boy, you want to get unprecedented, changing nominees at that point, uh, we'd be in totally uncharted territory. So I feel like if, if there became an opening soon, for whatever reason, like in the fall, for example, I think you would have Phil Murphy, governor of New Jersey, Gretchen Whitmer, Kamala Harris, obviously, um, Gavin Newsom, J.B. Pritzker, maybe some senators. I don't think I named any senators in that. Um, but I think that those are the ones that would have be able to get it together, launch an operation. I've heard the same thing that Chris has heard about. It's going to be a money race then. And I'm not sure that's 
true anymore. The Democratic nominee is just going to have a ton of money that I, I think people are going to be trying to suss out who the best person is. So if it happens early enough that there could be a real, even though it's truncated primary process where people could actually run and the, you know, South Carolina primary and New Hampshire primary and all of that, you would get like maybe five of these like very high caliber uh, candidates that would try to go for it. If something happens much later and we're looking at the Democratic convention, I just think it's going to be the vice president. She will likely top all of the polls. It's just too much at stake, too hard. To, you can't have some terrible brokered convention like the Democrats had in 1968 where they lost to Nixon. And I think that if the deeper it goes into the year, it would just you know, it would be seen as more of like a normal transition of power where people would rally behind the vice president. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Whether the ticket had been officially renominated or not, the later yeah. in the game it is, the, the greater the odds are for Harris. That's absolutely right. And the urgency, people are going to feel like we have just got to, and again, like I said before, Trump made Democrats great. <laughs> so whereas there might have been a lot of infighting before, I think they will, if this happens in this summer, they'll be like, we just need to coalesce behind the vice president and she's our nominee and, you know, let's go win. Dear Madam President. That's right. That's right. That's right. Jennifer, Chris, thanks for taking us inside this primary. Thank you, Brian. That was fun. Yeah, super fun. And once again, that was Jennifer Palmieri and Chris Smith. This episode was produced by Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter and threads and Instagram and everywhere at Brian Stelter. Uh, email me, bstelter at gmail.com with your ideas for future episodes. And we'll be right back here next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> From P.